Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast shining a light on women in history and all their glorious shapes and forms. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we will be talking about Yolande de Venet, later Yolande Lyne Stevens. Born in Versailles in December 1812, Yolande led an extraordinary life from a petit rat at the Paris Opera to heiress of one of the greatest non-aristocratic fortunes in Victorian England. In 1833, de Venet danced at the Theatre Royal London, where the young William H. P. Thackeray described it as a vision of loveliness. Famous for her beauty and talent, she was infamous as the heiress to the Lyne Stevens fortune with wealth to rival Queen Victoria. As a Parisian courtesan, the press had a field day when the heir to the Lyne Stevens family fortune married his Catholic French dancer mistress. Press attention continued after her husband died and as a widow, she fought court battles to keep her wealth and allowances while part of a scandalous throuple. Inside the Heroine City Gates today is Jennifer Roberts, the author of six books of narrative history, including Glass, The Strange History of the Line Stevens Fortune, and The Beauty of Her Age, a biography of Yolande Line Stevens, which is, as the wonderful Julian Fellows says, a fascinating study of the power of money in 19th century society. Jennifer is proud to have introduced Yolande's story to the reading public, and we are super excited to have her here with us to talk about it today. Welcome to Heroin City, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. It's our pleasure. I'm so excited to finally talk about Yolande because I've heard so much about her and I say I've heard so much about her. I've been going to Roehampton on and off for five years and I've only recently found out about her, but I've been treading in her footsteps literally at Roehampton University without knowing about this fascinating woman. So I'm super excited to get to know her better through your amazing work. Thank you. She's an astonishing woman, and what I think is very sad is that she's completely fallen out of history. It's not so much that she achieved, but she was so many different things in her life, all of which were quite extraordinary, and nobody else has had a lifespan or a life events that are quite so disparate, I don't think, as Yolande Duvenet. She was a, an amazing woman. And she really did have an epic life. We're going to touch on it, but this is why I think we should crack on, because there's so much to it. From, like you say, uh, a petit rat at the Paris Opera to one of the wealthiest women in the country. Yes, but I also think that she is a typical example of the fact that money does not buy happiness. She died so rich. She had something like 215 million at her disposal in her old age, and it didn't make her happy. This typical, well, no, untypical, rags to riches tale from a petty rat the opera from Charles Prostitution in Paris in poverty to being almost as rich as Queen Victoria, through, in many cases, not her own decisions, a few of them were her own decisions, but others were things that happened to her, turning points in her life that came. And the first turning point came in 1830 with the July Revolution, because she entered the ballet school at the age of six. And it was a punishing training. And I don't think there was very much education outside of dancing. And she was pushed by her mother because she was an only child. When she was 17, the July Revolution toppled the Bourbon monarchy and brought in a new bourgeoisie. And at the same time, a new director took over at the opera. And he set out to appeal to the taste of the new bourgeoisie. Most of which, let us say, were men of society who fancied the young girls. He took her into his bed. He already had a child because she was pimped by her mother from the age of about 14. He already had one child. But he took her into his bed and he just bypassed all the usual routes 
no quarter ballet, no junior roles, straight onto the stage in starring roles. She had the most amazing sex appeal. That was her star quality. I've seen it before. I had a cousin who had this level of sex appeal. I've never seen it in anyone else in my life before, but it was astonishing. She just had to stand there and raise an eyebrow and every man in the room would be in love with her. It was quite astonishing. And I see that Yolande had that power. So, of course, she became exceedingly successful when she danced on stage. She was so successful. That's something, I mean, you're making me think of Marilyn Monroe and people like that. I do believe, obviously, sometimes these things are in the DNA, like they're there they're, and then they're cultivated. It's interesting because obviously she was a talented dancer too, but talking about the crux of it being this ability to turn it on and to turn other people on when she was dancing, but when she walks in a room or whatever, and then use that power to her own ends, I guess. Well, she did use it, yes. She was a very manipulative woman. And one of the questions that you sent me about the melancholy that people mentioned in her life. I don't really see it that way. I think that it's all a means of getting what she wants. The director of the opera, who she was his mistress, he was called Louis Verrill, and he wrote that she had above all studied the power of weeping. And the word to think about there is power. And the weeping gave her power. So I think her weeping was cultivated. She did it all the time. She got what she wanted by weeping. She was very manipulative. And obviously, with that amount of sex appeal, it was a given. You know, she didn't create that. It, she just had it. And the manipulation gave her quite a lot to go on, except that until she got rid of her mother, everything in her life was dominated by her mother. Before we move on, there's a few things that I wanted to clarify. I'd like to know why you came to study her just before we go deeper into her story. And also maybe a bit about her parents and her start in life, because she was born in Versailles. Born in Versailles. Her parents were involved in the opera in Versailles. Mother, it seems, was a singer. His information has come to me since I wrote the book. I think her father was some kind of artiste, as he described himself. Whether he was a ballet master, not clear, but it was lowly roles. I mean, her mother would not have been a poet singer. She would have been in the chorus. But they left Versailles and came to Paris when Yolande was six because they saw talent in her. And she was their route to riches as they perceived it. She's very young to go into ballet school. I mean, a lot of the girls did go in at six, but most went in at seven or eight. You know, they really pushed her and she was an only child. So how I found out about the story goes all the way back to childhood because told about a great fortune in the distant family. Nobody knew very much about it, but I just kind of knew that it was there in the background. People sort of talked about it. And then after my mother died, I found newspaper cuttings about the death of Yolande and how the money was distributed, her husband's money, which was in trust for her, but after her death was distributed to his beneficiaries. And there were 93 of them by this time. So the newspapers mentioned this and there were false claimants to it. It was a, a huge cause celeb. So that's how I learned about it. And when I started writing history, thinking of writing about somebody else, but it just nagged at me and you, you have to give in to these things. So I started doing research in pre-internet days, you know, go winding through microfilms in the various archives. And gradually I found out about the source of the fortune. That was the first thing. Where did the money come from? And I found out that it came from a glass factory in Portugal. So I spent a lot of time in Portugal researching a wonderful Englishman who went to Portugal at the age of 15 or 14, very poor, completely ruined in the Lisbon earthquake. 
grew to become, I think, the richest industrialist in Europe. But that's another story. But that's the story of my first book. After that, I turned my attention to Yolande and what happened to the money when it came to England. I knew she landed up with it, but I didn't know how she landed up with it. And of course, she's the most fascinating story of all. That's how it came about. So your family are connected? From one of the 93. <laughs> and I would love to be able to say, because each of them got about a million pounds in today's money mm-hmm. on the distribution. And I would love to, <laughs> would love to think that it had come down the family. But unfortunately, he'd had gone badly into debt, buying shares in tin mines, which are all going bust. And it all went on paying off his debts. Because what he did is he sold his interest very early on after her husband died, which, of course, you could do in those days. You sell it to insurance companies or to other people. But the earlier you sell it, the less money you get because she's got longer to live so he sold i think only a year after stevens died and she had another 36 years to live so interesting so how long before you actually wrote the book how long were you looking at the sources and what were the sources the main source that was really really helpful were the two books by either death and he was a ballet historian those two books Yolande was in. So it was about the romantic ballet. He talked about Yolande. Not, obviously, the book was about a lot more than Yolande, but of course, he had his sources listed. Then there was a man called Louis Jean Pee who wrote a diary in the Paris Opera. He wrote a bit to A of the opera, and he wrote this diary, which I think I have a guest managed to transcribe and which I was seen, which tells a story about how Stephen. Yolande's eventual husband, he actually bought her sexual services from from her mother mainly. And he tells that story because he was told it by Antoine Coulon, who was a dancer with Yolande in London during the time that this drama happened, that he was persuaded to leave the stage, not live with, but be put up in another house and be the mistress of this rather unassuming young man who was the heir to a huge fortune. So before we get onto that deal specifically, I just wanted to maybe give a bit more background on her childhood. She obviously had talent. The dancing was always mixed in with sex work from her teens. And her mum was the kind of broker of that. And that's what a petit gras is. That's what the definition is. Yeah, and it was normal. It was what normally happened. And of course, they were expecting to get pregnant. As one Paris newspaper wrote, and I love this, Quote, pretty women are prone to more indispositions than others. It's really tragic. That was written when Yolande took time off when she was famous for her second child. She had to take several months off and, and that was the comment made. And like you say, there were euphemisms used for that because it was something that happened a lot. It wasn't something that anyone was surprised about, which breaks your heart a little bit, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the children always disappeared. I mean, they were given away. Actually, there's a passage in Jane Eyre. Because Jane Eyre was employed as the governess in the book to look after Rochester's daughter by a Parisian opera dancer who'd had a baby by him and didn't look after it, gave it away, so he'd adopted it. So, I mean, it was quite normal and they didn't keep them. I don't know what happened to her two children. And you don't think that that's something to do with the underlying melancholia? I know you were saying, obviously, a brilliant actress. They talk about her being a brilliant actress. And then that incident that you mentioned with the jewels when she's crying and he walks in, it's Veron, right? Is is it? Yeah, and he says, why is she crying? And the mother says, oh, it's because the other leading lady has got jewels and she doesn't have any. I mean, gosh. (laughs) And then he goes and proceeds to buy her jewels. 
obviously that's manipulation, but do you not think that somewhere along the line that there would have been an underlying mel- melancholy? Until she got an old woman, until she became old and really rather embittered, there's nothing from her personally, there's no letters, there's nothing, nothing from her husband. I've called every record I can think of, every source I can think of. There's a lot about when she was a dancer. I mean, she only danced for six years on the stage, and there's a lot about that. There's newspaper reviews, there's other people saying, you know, all sorts of stuff about how wonderful she was. After that, it just goes so quiet. And in fact, the most interesting memoirs that describe her are those in the Roehampton archives, the memoirs of a Mrs. Smith, I think, Aunt Claire, who writes about knowing Yolande, not knowing her, because they weren't invited to the house, nobody was, during the famous Ménage à Trois, which we'll talk about later. Yes. It's hard to get into how she felt in the earlier part of her life. You can only deduce. I mean, I do see what you're saying, and I do think at the end of her life, we're getting ahead of ourselves again, but when she built the great church in Cambridge, some people said that she built it in honour of the children she failed to conceive with her husband. And I make the point in the book then that it's more likely to be in honour of the two children that she did have. But there's nothing to pinpoint how it affected her. Frustrating because there's so little mm. from her. We have to connect the dots. And, and this is something that comes up a lot in the podcast when I talk to people who are studying women in history. You have to connect the dots after hearing about them through the third person, other people talking about them, and then yes. figure it out by triangulating and, and all the rest of it. There's an awful lot of triangulation mm-hmm. and an awful lot of waking up in the middle of the night with a brand new idea and scribbling it down on a notepad. <laughs> the thing is as well... I'm a performer and I've sang since my teens and this could have been part of it and I would have loved to have seen her perform but she wouldn't have always done happy roles she would have done sad roles as well and there would have been an expression of something there and I think that if someone's that good and can captivate there has to be some authenticity that's just my view as a performer I wonder if some of it came out there as well just that life that she'd led you know there's one quote that I find very telling when she's dancing just at the end she knows she's living up the stage she's agreed to give it up to be with Stevens but she has to finish her contract in London and one of the roles is La Sophie La Sophie the stilt family so she dies on stage and there's a review which talks about how elegantly she died, her wings falling to the ground. And I think she danced that with such feeling because she knew that her stage life was coming to an end. She, she didn't want this man. He was, Antoine Cunard said, he was the admirer. She liked the beast, but the money was there. And her mother was offered almost a million pounds in today's money to keep, not for Yolande, but to keep, if she persuaded Yolande accept the offer. The interesting thing is that Princess Victoria went to the theatre quite often in those days and she, she loved Ivanet. She drew Ivanet quite often. There were several pictures by her in the book of Yolande. She wrote at the end, just before Yolande gave up, that she danced beautifully but looked so wretchedly thin and pale because she didn't want to give up the stage. She loved it. I mean, she was she was the biggest star. I mean, she was celebrity is new. It isn't she was the most massive star, and all the men in London and Paris wanted to go to bed with her. I mean, really, it was quite astonishing. She was besieged by men. She was very naughty with them, really. She played tricks on them. And but she had an ability that gave her power. Mm. She had power when she was on the stage, absolutely. Mm. But, you know, when she had to give it up, Stevens, her man, protects her. And his interests were hunting, shooting, racehorses, and gambling in, club, in London clubs. 
Milan was alone. We gave her a house in Kensington. She was alone there, except when he came to visit. And sometimes he would invite men, men of his acquaintance, to come and visit. He'd show her off. But otherwise, she was alone, and she was reduced to giving dancing lessons to children. She was living in London, away from Paris. She didn't know anybody, because her mother wanted all this money. Mm. And I think Stevens was kind, but he had nothing going for him, really, apart from money. And she had all those years until she dated him into marriage. That, that was her alone, a very clever trick. But she had to do a trick to do it. And it's a trick that Louis Veron describes in his book. Before we get to that, because honestly, that that's brilliant. And, and like you say, that's when, you know, the lesson, the life lesson that money can't buy you happiness is stuck. But then I don't think that lesson was lost on her perhaps pretty young. I think having the mother she did who was pursuing money at her expense, yes. she would have learned that quite quickly, I think. Just going back to how she played the game with the admirers, you put in the book, she was idolised for her beauty, wit and lightness of heart, for the spontaneity of her conversation and repartee, and for the gaiety and sentiment frankness and firm opinions expressed in her letters and this bit I really like and became known as a consummate mistress of sarcasm with would-be lovers (laughs) (laughs) and then you give some examples of how she do that and that's her toying with these rich men and her deciding how it was going to happen and who with and that's really interesting yeah I mean she would just toy with them and you know there was one story which I find I find quite shocking in a way this young man comes up to her and says, oh, I would do anything for you. I would give my life. And she said, well, you know, you men are all the same. And if you really love me, you can give me one of your front teeth. So off he goes. And I mean, this is absolutely appalling. He comes back with a box and he opens it and there's a tooth inside and he points to a bloody gap. And she says, oh, you man, you bought me a top tooth and I wanted a bottom one. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You can imagine him going, tying a bit of string and pulling that the door closed to get his top teeth out. Oh, that's how she made fun of them. I mean, good. He deserved it. And then he walks off and it doesn't happen anyway. She said she, she was joking, right? Yeah, I mean, she asked some elderly Russian who was laying court to her to bring her so much money and gold, and, and, and he did. Here you are. She said, take away all that old iron. I was only joking. They deserved it, didn't they? I think that's brilliant. They did. But then at the point, like you say, she didn't particularly like Lion Stevens, but money talked. Let's talk about yeah. the deal. Let's talk about what, what he did to secure her favour, as, well, as they say. Joining the dots, as you say, he used to hunt at Melton Mowbray every winter. He'd never seen her dance. She danced in London three times. He had three London seasons and he'd never seen her dance because he'd always been up in Melton Mowbray hunting and I can place him there by newspaper reports and so on. So I know he hadn't seen her dance. I know that he was there during the winter of 1836-7, which was her final London season. And I know he was there during the races that ended the season because he was a steward. Follow the times of when Yolande was dancing. He wrote to his father and asked his father to buy him a private box at the theatre. So we'd obviously heard because at this point she was dancing a new dance called the Capucha, which was very sexy and it was sort of Spanish Cuban. He absolutely infused it with that sexuality and it was the talk of the men. So men would have been arriving in Melton Mowbray saying, ah, oh, this Katusha, yeah. he thought he would look at it. And so he asked his father to get him a box. And I'm pretty certain I know the date that he actually sat in that box and watched her dance. It was her benefit performance in April, 1837. I think that he thought of a cunning plan that night because the negotiations started quite quickly after that. It was considered a huge 
huge achievement by the favours of a of the opera. And really, only very rich men could indulge in it. And so he thought if he could do it, if he could get her, this star of the opera, this biggest star of the season, massive celebrity, if he could get her, maybe the men would take him more seriously because he was perceived as a parvenu. His father's fortune had been made in trade. He was nouveau riche. And money got him into the society. They kind of looked down on him. So he thought if he could do this, if he could get her, he'd be looked upon more favourably. I think he probably was, although she lost everything. What was the theatre? It was the King's Theatre, which is now Her Majesty's. It's still there. You can tread that stage in the steps that she was during this dramatic because Stevens played court to her, he did the usual thing, he put jewels, invited her to dinners, and she said, no, 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 not interested, not interested. He really couldn't be bothered with him at all. Then he was advised to target her mother, so whoever advised him to target her mother struggled her life around. Because he did, he offered her 800,000 by today's money, persuade her to leave the stage, live in London, her mother would have nothing more to do with her. That was the only plus, I think, in the whole thing. She refused, she continued to refuse. Princess Victoria noted that she was getting harder and thinner and stressed. And eventually she gave in. She agreed to do it, but had to pass for a few more weeks. During which time, her lover of the moment, who she really was in love with, the Marquis de Lavalette, who she'd moved on to after Veron's letter. It didn't take long to move on to him. And she was in love with him. He was a young, good-looking man, much more attractive than Beryl. And he, he was at a short-term diplomatic appointment in Stockholm. He was on his way home to Paris, called into London to see Yolande. And they met again in her dressing room. And according to Antoine Coulon, they spent a delicious night together. Yolande's mother sent a message to Stephen this had happened. So that Stevens put things in place. So when the Marquis de Valette turned up at the dressing room in the King's Theatre that night, he was barred from going in. No, you can't come in, uh, Monsieur le Marquis. In the end, he challenged Stevens to a duel. Well, Stevens was, as I say, an unremarkable young man. I'm not really used to this sort of thing. And Yolande managed to defuse it. He did defuse it. He, he spent 10 to 10 minutes alone with the Marquis de Valette, at which point she told him, please, for the sake of my happiness, go away with me. Yeah. Must have broken her heart. We knew him as well. She was losing her life on the stage. Didn't know that she had many friends. I think she had rivals in the Paris Opera. It's a very self-contained world. I don't think you moved out of it. So I don't think she had many friends. But she did have a network that she knew all the other dancers. Lost them as well. I always see things as films or something that you'd watch on TV, and this has just got everything, isn't it? And she spent several years being his mistress in London, bored out of her skull. I would have thought to be honest. You How know, old just, would just... she have been at this point? He was in his 30s and she was 24. She was only 24 when she left the stage. I mean, it was, the more I think about it, the more I just think how she landed up with all the money. So you could say that she won the lottery of life, but I don't think she did. I think she signed away her independence and her youth and her ability and fun. She signed away fun. I think he was kind to her. They travelled on the continent when he felt like it. He loved her. I think she did grow to love him because he was probably the only person who had ever been kind to her in her life. That would have been a plus. The stability, I guess, was something. I mean, she obviously was someone that kind of thrived on excitement though that's the trouble I think or not the trouble because I think that that's what's endearing about her but even though it's brought stability and maybe a sense of home sense of home maybe a sense of something but actually it might not have been suitable for her character maybe 
Well, actually, she did have a choice because his original um, contract was only for three years. She had to be faithful to him for three years. According to a Paris gossip sheet, after three years, she did go back to Paris on her own, and she started her affair up again with the Marquis de Lavalette. That's a gossip sheet. We, we know about those. You know, it may not be true, but I like to think it's true because it means that when she came back to Stevens, that was of her own volition. I mean, the Marquis de Vallette was not a very nice man, really. He was always after the main chance. During the three years that Yolande was with Stevens, he'd been with another ballet dancer who'd borne him a child. He was out for the main chance, and Yolande was no longer the main chance because she couldn't go back on the stage. She'd put on weight. She hadn't practiced. You know, her stage career was gone. She wasn't the main chance, so it wasn't going to work. So she came back to Stevens. Now, Stevens was very ill at this time. The gossip sheets reported. Joining the dots and adding a few, you could say that his illness coincided with reading the Paris newspapers that said she was back in bed with the Marquis de Lavalette. The timings fit. It's possible that he did get ill because of that. And she came back. And that's when she persuaded him to let her leave the house in Kensington that he'd put her up in and live with his father, who had this massive wealth, in the grand house in Portman Square. How she manipulated that, I don't know. There's no record. But I think she would have used the fact that she'd given up the Marquis de la Ballette again as a bargaining chip. Anyway, so she moves into Portman Square, and she insists in conversing in French, which Stevens's elderly father was pretty fed up with. And in no time at all, he bought Grove House in Roehampton to get away from Yolande, I think. So then Yolande and Stevens lived alone for a little bit longer. And then it's a question of marriage. That was Yolande's next goal. Just to give it a little bit of context, <laughs> ballerinas in general, what would their career span be? At this point, you know, obviously it's too late. She's come off the stage anyway. But that would have been something that was a factor in deciding this. She'd continued to dance, she could have gone on for many more years, really, because as they aged, they went into smaller roles, but they still danced into their 30s. After that, it depended on whether they found a protector or a husband or something like that, because there was no career after that. And she couldn't have gone back on the stage. She could have stayed in Paris. I mean, there was some kind of an annuity from Stevens, which should have been paid after the three years were up. So she had some money, maybe not enough for the life she wanted. So she'd been boxed into a corner, really, ultimately? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, she'd lost everything and the only thing she did have was Stevens. And she did try, I think, to pick up her old life, but it didn't work. And she was estranged from her mother at at that point because she'd gotten away from her mother with the deal. Gotten away from her mother and we don't know what happened to her mother. She had a series of lovers. I don't know what happened to the father. There was a father and he was around when she first came to London to dance because we know that he threw some flowers down which hit somebody (laughs) at the end of one of her performances on the stage. (laughs) But what happened to him, I don't know, because by the time of the transaction, she was living with a lover called Monsieur Labellissaire. And I don't think there's any further contact with Yolande as far as I know. Again, after a few years living with Stevens, there was no way forward for her now. Aging mistresses, and we all know about men and younger models, and with his money he could easily have found a younger model. So marriage was the thing. And how she did it, Louis Veron, her first lover, wrote in his memoirs that she'd worked very hard to achieve her goal, 
she was in Paris with Stevens. Lady Aldborough, who was in her 90s, was living in Paris with an English lady's maid who was reputed to have very strict morals. Now, I don't know how, how true this is, but I love to think it's true. Lady Aldborough died, so the aunt goes off and employs the lady's maid and pretends that she and Stevens are married. So the lady's maid works for your aunt as the wife, and they have a big dinner party with lots of important people coming or posh people coming. At which point, Yolande plays it up and the lady's maid comes in to Stevens in the middle of the dinner party or the beginning of the dinner party and says, my mistress can't leave her chamber. So Stevens hurries off to the bedroom and finds Yolande in tears. Here we go again. And she said... My lady's maid has resigned my service because she's found out we're not married. I cannot bear this insult. And they were married in a very short time afterwards. But you see, that's manipulative. <laughs> that definitely is. Interesting, though, that she still had the ability to make that happen when Stevens also had the ability to go anywhere and, like you say, find a younger model that was not necessarily so disreputable. It was quite a scandal, wasn't it? It's one thing having a mistress who's a French ballerina. It's quite another thing marrying her. Exactly. Remember that we are now in the period of Victorian social mores that are the most strict. She is French. She's Catholic. They really were looked down on. And she'd been a prostitute. She ticked all the boxes. All the scandal boxes. Do you think Stevens had a bit of a wild streak in him? No, I'm not even sure of how sexual their relationship was. There's no record of any other girlfriend up until this point. And the gossip sheets would have said so if there were, because, you know, he was the heir to the largest non-aristocratic fortune in England. I don't know about his sexuality. I'm sure he wouldn't have gone off with the younger model. There are records that his father despaired of his lassitude and his inactivity. He never did anything. He was in the hussars for resolved quite quickly and he didn't stand again. So he didn't do anything except hunt and shoot and they moved to lower grove house which is another house on the estate and i think they did that because having got married they found they were even more ostracized than they were before they were married so when she got to roehampton as the memoirs of mrs smith who lived there says because her past had not been spotless the matrons of roehampton refused to call upon her she was shunned all her life i mean you know even after she was widowed I mean, she was working young. She probably, like you say, didn't have many friends. Do you think she just got hardened to it? Probably. I don't know how much it hurt. It would hurt me, I'm sure. It's got to have been one of the contributing factors to her feeling lonely and isolated. I think she was a very unhappy woman, really. She slips out of grasp because then she does things that indicates that that's not so. So it's very hard sometimes i think you know she's a survivor she's a real survivor in some ways she was not in control of her own life the only time she was in control in her life came later which we'll talk about there's a portrait of her in sort of early middle age where she looks incredibly elegant of course she didn't have to do anything housework wise you know everything was laid on massive of servants she did some charitable stuff as i say was probably rather bored but i think he found her comfortable i would love to see more personal personality in him but he is very much an empty canvas really my suspicion is that the silly man hadn't even thought of marrying her and he might have married her earlier if he'd thought of it <laughs> but she went through all that rigmarole <laughs> i was very amused that one of the french commentators who knew her when that story came out said well at least it shows that an english lady's maid is good for something the father is still alive and you said that he bought grove house to get away from her joining the dots 
the timing fits, that she moved into the house and they lived together. You know, they ate together. It was, you know, she wasn't kept separate. And it was a very grand house where the father used to give grand dinners with all sorts of people like prime ministers and cabinet ministers and people at the top. And he was probably a little ashamed of this French Catholic courtesan at the table who insisted on speaking in French, which must have been a bit tricky because she never really learned to speak English well at all. So he bought Grove House and the huge estate, including another house, which is called Lower Grove House, which stands where the tennis club is now, I think. When they all lived together and they lived with his father, there was some semblance of respectability. But when the father left and Stevens and Yolande were alone in this house, it could be perceived their sexual relationship became more of a scandal. So that's when they left. They left, it was a lease, they left Portman Square and they moved to Lower Grove House where they lived very quietly. They were in Paris when she did the manipulating, but they were based in Lower Grove House in England. And that's where they married. They married from Grove House. They came back from Paris in an enormous train of carriages because a local newspaper reports their arrival at Dover came back to Roehampton, told his father, the story goes that his father was very good about it and gave them money on their marriage. It was very quiet. They married in the parish church in Putney and then immediately went off to the Catholic chapel in near Kensington and they married again there. So they had a Catholic ceremony as well and a very, very small reception. I mean, Stephen, I think he had only one friend left from his hunting days man called Roland Errington, he had been loyal. All the others had gone with the shock and horror. And he was, I think, a witness at the wedding. And then afterwards, Yolande and Stephen set off for a long tour of the continent. And there she was sculpted in marble in a bust. We'll tell you the story later. But that bust stands in Oxford Hall in Norfolk, the National Trust property. And there's a reason for that. But it's the first thing that visitors see as they go through the door. I'm very proud for her of that, because although the present Beddingfields who live in Oxford Hall don't like to think of it, her influence saved that house from demolition. But we'll come to that later. They've honeymooned, she's been sculpted. There were lots of paintings of her, actually, weren't there? There was lots of contemporary images of her dancing, but the only images later are this beautiful painting I told you about in middle age and a portrait of her in her old age painted in Paris in 1888. That one I'd like to talk about later because there's something about that painting that is very telling. So she is off on honeymoon. They come back. They're in Lower Grove House. The father is in Upper Grove House or Grove House. He passes away quite quickly. He dies in 1851. He dies six years after the wedding. And then Stevens is the richest commoner in England. He inherits everything. He's the sole heir. He had four sisters, but they all died. So it's only him. He's the only child. They move into Grove House. Then, of course, the world is their oyster. And they buy a, a hotel in Paris, a huge mansion. And he started building a house in Norfolk, Linford Hall. I think it had something like 50 bedrooms. They went and shooting in Scotland. He had a, a shooting estate in Scotland for a while. She became Mrs. Lyon Stevens of Roehampton and she became very close to a nun. You know there's a convent, a convent of the Sacred Heart. An English nun had arrived as Mother Superior called Mabel Digby. They became really good friends and Yolande would go and see her. I don't think anyone knew and she gave lots of money to the convent because she was getting very, very religious at this stage. I'm not quite sure 
when the religiosity came in. I cannot see it there in her youth, but I think during her marriage, she was giving lots of money to that convent and other Catholic charities. And then, of course, later on, she built lots of big churches, but that's in her widowhood. So they lived a very contented life, but he got immensely fat. <laughs> I mean... He stopped hunting. He didn't take any exercise. He had one of the best cooks in the country. So he ate enormous meals every day and he was probably drinking and smoking. His blood pressure must have been through the roof. And I think diabetes probably as well. And he died in 1860, just nine years after inherited the money. 59 when he died. He left a will giving Yolande... First of all, he gave Yolande Grove House outright. It was hers. And he gave her the equivalent of three million in today's money in her own right. Everything else was in trust, but she had full use of the income. So there she was in England working with English lawyers. You know, she was the sole executor. She wasn't that bright. She certainly didn't know about running things, legal financial things. And the lawyers and trustees looked down upon her. They tried actually to reduce the amount of money she got. The money was put into the Court of Chancery, the infamous Court of Chancery, which follows up her fortunes in legal bills. And they brought a bill of complaint against her, which said, this is a paraphrase, the defendant, Yolande, claims to be entitled to the actual income of this huge estate. But we, lawyers and the trustees, are advised that she is not entitled to receive such large benefits, and it is doubtful what amount of income she ought to receive. There's nothing wrong with the will. It was perfectly clear. Left everything to her, but they didn't win, I'm glad to say. But that's just typical. You know, there she was. She was a woman alone, adrift, and no one to advise her. And they were trying to do her down. What is her solution to that, Jennifer? <laughs> Her solution to that is Colonel, later General, Edward Claremont, who was the British military attaché in the British Embassy in Paris, because she obviously spent a lot of time in her hotel in Paris. And actually, I've walked it. The distance from her house to the British Embassy is six minutes. Very short walk. And I timed it because later on, he would make illicit visits to her. And I just wondered how long it would take in his lunch hour. Brilliant. <laughs> Yes, so at, at this point, how old is she? She was 48. He was low-hanging fruit, really. He didn't have a very big salary. He had no money of his own, which was unusual for military people at this time, at this rank. They normally had a private income. He didn't. And he had six children and a wife. So he was living beyond his means because he had to equip himself with uniform and horses because he was mixing with French generals and so forth. And he was doing a very good job, I think. I read his dispatches to the Foreign Office and to Queen Victoria, who he was friendly with. He was good. His mother was a French actress. He was born illegitimate to a French actress in the Comédie Française. His father was an English general. And he'd been brought up in Paris, spoke French perfectly. It meant that they got on so well because they had that background in common. And she wouldn't have felt judged in that case. No, no, not at all. But he was low-hanging fruit. He was a weak man. And Yolande was still sexy. And she seduced him in the spring of 1862. 
and soon he was managing more and more of her affairs. And he went to Norfolk with her illicitly. He took time off. He did take the British ambassador into his confidence about this affair. I actually found these notes he used to wrote to the ambassador in the National Archives in Kew, wrapped up in brown paper and not properly indexed. And I didn't quite know what I was getting. And I was suddenly getting all these letters saying, don't tell anyone, you know, I'll be back as soon as I can. And then he would write, terribly sorry I came back later than I said. It was very much against my will, but I couldn't help it. That was his constant refrain. It was very much against my will, but I couldn't help it because she had control of him. The money was always there because he needed money. He was always writing to John Russell. I'm not quite sure what position he held in government. He was writing to him saying, he didn't have enough money, didn't have any. Can I have more money? Please give me more money. I haven't got enough to live on. So there was this money and there was this attractive woman. What are you going to do? wife seemed so unkind to say that she had six children and the only photograph I have of her is with the last child on her lap and she looks tired a bit trumpish there she was in Paris looking after all these children cooking dinners for French generals and all the rest of it so I mean she was a bit worn out and there was Yolande being absolutely wonderful and in no time at all you know he was just sort of sucked in as I said he went to Norfolk because Linford Hall Stevens never saw this house in his lifetime. It hadn't been finished. And it was finished in the autumn of 1862. And that's when he took time off and he helped her move in. That went on until 1870. Again, another thing happened. The July Revolution in 1830 pushed her into stardom because Louis Veron picked her up and put her on the stage. And the Franco-Prussian War did the same with Claremont. If there hadn't been a Franco-Prussian War, she wouldn't have got him, I don't think. The thing was that the famous siege of Paris began in September 1870 as the Germans circled Paris, and it went on for months, and people were eating rats, and they were eating the animals in the zoo. The starvation was quite great. All the British embassy had left, and they'd gone to Bordeaux, which was still unoccupied territory. And the only people left at the embassy was Clermont and a porter. Now, you would think that Claremont would stay. He had done a good job up to that point in looking after the English residents. There were quite a lot of English residents. Three months after the siege, he rode out. He got permission to ride through the lines. He rode to enemy lines, went to Versailles, where the Germans were, spent a few days there, and then came back to England. Anyway, he landed up in London, and four weeks later, he was sent orders to report to the Army of the East in France, not to Paris, but to the Army of the East. And he didn't reply to that order for 15 days. Now, those 15 days are so crucial, because by the time the order was issued, where was he? Not with his family in London. Guess what? He was with Yolande in Linford Hall. Did he not get the order? I think what happened is that Yolande said, please stay with me a bit longer, please stay with me. Cried tears had power of weeping. So he didn't reply for 15 days. And when he did reply, he said he was terribly sorry he hadn't replied before, but it was due to a circumstance over which I had no control. Same thing. I couldn't help it. And so he had to resign. And then he had no money and no pension and a family. And Yolande said, come and live with me. You can take charge of all my affairs and you'll never have to think about money again. And as she said, after he died, she had, in her own words, every wish and whim fulfilled, every trouble and anxiety taken off my shoulders. But just think what it was like for Claremont's wife. I see Yolande now, and this isn't very flattering, a sort of a large spider getting him closer and closer into her web. She insisted on being called Madame by everybody. 
He, by this time, was a general. So it was Madame and the general everywhere. Even the children were saying, Madame and the general have gone to Paris. Madame and the general are at Roehampton. On one occasion, one of the children wrote, Give my love to Madame and my mother. It's a sequence of those two things. She gradually became more imperious and more demanding and more difficult. She was so jealous of him. She couldn't bear anyone else being with him. I mean, he was clearly the love of her life without any question. Oh, really? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. And, of course, he danced attendance on her, which, which she loved, and he took everything off her shoulders. Again, you see, scandal, shock horror. The matrons of Roehampton still didn't call on her. <laughs> but she was just totally dependent, and, and it was a menage a trois. I mean, I don't know whether Yolande was still sleeping with Fairmont, possibly. That's interesting but, that the matrons of Roehampton took pity on the wife and thought kindly of the wife in that scenario. Yeah, I think the word was his poor wife, who resented and disliked the dependent position bitterly. I mean, it's a very Victorian moral society at this point, and, and I guess, you know, the Parisian mistress, it's a, a Parisian sensibility that she's bringing anyway on top of... Yes. Yeah, having gone from sort of living in sin with Stevens, she'd gone to living in sin in a menage a trois. I do admire her courage for doing those things, but I don't think she cared what people thought about her. I think that ship sailed a long time ago for her to care, didn't it? She's never had that kind of life, so she would have given up on and caring about what yes. people think very early on. As you say, she never had ever, except those six years in Paris when she was such a star and she could play games with all the men. And even then, she would have been known as a courtesan. They still would have known that. Yeah. Yes, they'd have known her as Veron's mistress and then Lavalette's mistress and no doubt the old financial thing on the side as well. We are pausing the story there. Please join us next week when we continue on the journey of Yolande de Verne's epic life and Jennifer and I carry on where we left off discussing her later years and her legacy. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>